0: Welcome to the Dad Strength Podcast, helping you take care of yourself so that you can be present for your people. The Dad Strength Podcast is an unlearning network production. My name is Jeff Gervitz, and I am not just your host, I am the chief engineer of my own motor cortex. I think about movement a lot. I believe that movement comes first in fitness. While some athletes are more truly limited by their hardware, and I'm thinking endurance runners, cyclists, folks like that, most have a much more complex picture. Think about the cardio for a mixed martial artist, for example. Is it pure physiology? Do we just look at their heart and lungs and muscles? Or are there fuzzier, more functional qualities of aerobic fitness, like the ability to minimize unneeded muscular tension, to sell an attack that actually buys them a moment of needed recovery, to calm themselves down when overly excited, to have more efficient mechanics, meaning less force is needed to produce the same result. You know, there's a lot that goes into it. Many years ago, I discovered someone else who also cared a ton about movement, albeit through a more therapy-based lens. Todd Hargrove is a manual and movement therapist with a gift for writing about movement, which is kind of like dancing about architecture, I suppose, or however the saying goes. Uh, But Todd has written two books, A Guide to Better Movement and Playing with Movement. I will link to both of those in the show notes. Both books have received a lot of praise from people who really know this stuff. Beyond his therapy and writing, Todd is also a teacher and lecturer, and he's a dad. Before we get going, I am right now focused on my newest project and what will be the first for my in person workshops for dad strength. I'm pretty stoked about this. Now, this particular workshop will take place in Toronto. It is for a very specific type of person, it is for dads who are high achievers and have ADHD. So, Here, we're going to talk about movement-based approaches to meditation and mental acuity, and we'll get into how to leverage your unique strengths. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to dadstrength.com slash ADHD. I'll say it again, Uh, dadstrength.com slash ADHD, and you can find all about it there. Now for my interview with Todd Hargrove. Let's get into it.
1: I uh, live here in Seattle. I'm a rolfer. That's kind of a deep tissue massage. I'm a Feldenkrais practitioner. That's like... um, uh, kind of a mindful movement practice, and uh, I haven't seen people for like uh, fifteen years trying to help them with pain and trying to to help them solve you know like what I call movement problems. Uh, you know, like they they uh, they're running and their foot hurts, or they want to get better at sports, or you know they think that their whatever pain they has they have has something to do with movement or posture or something like that. Uh, before that, I was an attorney of all things for about uh, ten years uh, before I got into this kind of different line of work. And I also write a blog and I write books about all this stuff.
0: You were, so you were, um, you were an attorney and I think you were experiencing some, some aches and pains or, or what, what kind of started? this Yeah, journey?
1: I was, uh, I was sitting at a desk, uh, all day and, uh, my neck hurt and my back hurt and, uh, it really kind of got my attention And so I started getting uh, interested in, hey, how can I fix this with physical therapy, with stretching, with yoga? Uh, Does this have something to do with posture? Is there anything that I can do? And around the same time, I was kind of, um, I was really uh, interested in getting better at sports because I was competing at squash. And I was just kind of interested in the idea of, you know, like scientifically training to have better coordination, you know, not just better speed, strength, and stuff like that, but there's something you can do to improve your overall coordination. So I started reading uh online and books that were kind of about this subject. And a lot of times it was connected because the physical therapists were talking about, you know, the quality of your movement might have something to do with uh, you know, whether or not you're hurting. And of course, it could have something to do with your sports performance too. And there's people like Gray Cook, who was a physical therapist, who was talking to the sports people, and the sports people listened to the physical therapy people, and I kind of started trying a lot of this stuff on myself, uh, with like you know like functional training or corrective exercise or yoga and Pilates, kettlebells. Tried lots of different things. Feldenkrais ended up feeling a whole lot better, uh, and so I just got kind of interested and geeked out in the thing enough to try to make a career out of it.
0: It's cool to, you know, one of the things that I really like about uh, you and what you do is having this um, sort of movement-centric view of this stuff. Because I think we, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like when we we talk about this in terms of um, media and culture, when we look at exercises, the first thing we're looking at is like, what's, what's an exercise you can do? And usually like it's associated with um, get this result. What's the best way to burn body fat or the best way to yeah. increase your arm size and then maybe after that a, like a distant second is is sets and reps and maybe rest period but what i don't hear discussed very much is uh, quality of movement or the experience probably because it's harder it's harder to get across
1: well it's harder to make a science out of qualities than quantities you know the things that get measured the things that people get interested in it's the you know it's empowering to be able to Measure the number of sets and reps you do, and you can really understand the progress you're making or measure someone's performance if you can say, Hey, how much do you bench? How much did you, how fast did you run that mile? But it's much more elusive to uh, try to define or assess the quality of movement. But there, there's something there because, you know, I remember being young and the first time I went to see a tennis. Uh, the, the US Open tennis. My played a lot of tennis when I was when I was young. And to see the quality of movement up close that the professionals had, just that weird smoothness, that unbelievable uh, coordination that they had was just kind of very appealing to me. And you know you see it with great runners when great really great runners run by, there's just this efficiency to their movement. And so how do you measure that? How do you train that? It's kind of obvious how you get bigger muscles or get bigger, aerobic capacity, but how do you go about training coordination and and what benefits do that give you? That's kind of the question that I was interested in.
0: Yeah. um, I read, and and I don't remember where this was recently, but it's been stuck in my head. And that was beginning tennis players will compromise rhythm to get technique and great tennis players will compromise technique to maintain rhythm.
1: That's an interesting idea. Yeah, uh, that's, uh, I, I like that. I hadn't heard that before. But uh, you know how when you when you start out at something like uh, golf or skiing or dance, these complex movements that some people make look so rhythmic and unified and smooth and and coherent throughout the whole activity, you know, to to start the process of learning the technique, you tend to kind of lock all of your joints together, so they can't move smoothly and rhythmically and flowing. You have to simplify what's going on, kind of lock down a lot of your joints, and it makes your movement look robotic and awkward. And uh, that's, that's part of the learning process. But you know, you're getting there when you can kind of release everything and let it flow. You know, when you see that, that's a high level of technical accomplishment.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a journey. Do you want to talk maybe about movement variability and the kind of path it takes?
1: Yeah, sure. So one of the things that I that I kind of learned studying the nature of, you know, coordination and good movement, is that uh, variability matters a lot more. Than you think it does and there's there's tends to be a, some real misunderstandings about it so when we see like let's say roger federer hitting forehands, or or someone running with a beautiful stride or someone throwing a great pitch what you what you think you see is a, an incredibly repetitive automated robotic machine-like repetitive precision but actually Hiding there is a lot of variability in what they're doing. So they, they're actually able to do the thing that looks very much the same and always hits the target, but they're surprisingly always using kind of a different technique to get it done. And it's that ability to make subtle variations within every repetition that's part that kind of defines part of why they're so good at it. So, there's a guy named Nikolai Bernstein, Russian scientist, that studied coordination. He did it in blacksmiths. Blacksmiths take the hammer and they hit the target every single time. They're really good at that. And he used a cyclogram to kind of like uh, uh, trace the pattern that they were using each time they they took a hit. And it's a different pathway each time. It's It's a different pathway each time because as soon as you start on your pathway, you make some sort of subtle error in, in, in the trajectory, and that needs to be corrected. And it needs to be corrected. And it's it's your ability to kind of have, be resourceful and have like these motor widths and dexterity to always be in the process of correcting what you're doing along the pathway. And what he found out was that the expert blacksmiths had more variability in their pathways and what they were doing than the novices. So So the implication of this is that when we're training to be really good at some sort of movement skill, like shooting a basket or hitting the target, we tend to, to uh, do too much of the repetitive drills where we're repeating the same thing every, every time. And it, would, and it would be better to try to hit this target under different circumstances. So basketball, shoot with a hand in your face, shoot while leaning back, shoot while dribbling, shoot from this position, shoot from that position, shoot from the other position that's what's going to build the kind of real world dexterity and skill in what you're doing. We tend to overemphasize these robotic machine, like repetitive drills, which are boring anyway.
0: Yeah. And it's, you know, it speaks to sometimes at the beginning of learning a thing, we, we need to do that to, to just get some some. There's practicing. a role for that. Yes. 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 However, um, but the takeaway here is whether we're, we're, um talking about jump shots or we're talking about you know striking an anvil in the same spot every every movement is different but they are are unified in their success in terms of how they end right?
1: yeah 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 um, the 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 outcome is invariant but the method to achieve the outcome is variant and this applies to the way you work out in the gym like a lot of people when they're squatting they're trying to use that same exact textbook perfect form every single time now that might be pretty important when you've got lots of weight on your back but if you're just kind of squatting down to the floor and just kind of working on the mobility do it in lots of different ways do it with the feet apart do it with the feet close together turned out turned in Turned to the side that's the kind of practice that builds kind of like what i think of as a large movement vocabulary that's the way kids learn to move that's the way athletes learn to move doing the same thing under many different conditions it's something that's. Underemphasized. You go into the gym, you see people doing that robotic thing, the same way every time. It's boring. It's repetitive. It's not even as effective as as you know adding the variability.
0: Uh, there was a story you told, that reminded me you were you were one of the people I you know really wanted to talk to you for this uh, about your daughter. Can I get you to uh, share that?
1: Yeah. So this is kind of a story that uh, I call it the bike parable. I just wrote a blog about this recently. And in my mind, it was kind of a metaphor for what I see, uh, with, uh, clients and then kind of like what it's trying to illustrate is like the difference between people and machines. So my daughter is, uh, learning to bike for the first time. We've got her bike out there. I don't know. She's like four or five years old and the bike has got a movement problem. And so it's the the uh, the pedal won't turn there's a grinding noise it's it's obviously broken i don't know how to fix bikes i take it to the bike person uh they look at it and they go uh hmm, there's the okay oh aha i know what the problem is and then they take out some sophisticated tools and they loosen one thing and they tighten another thing and then within like two or three minutes, the problem is fixed. I mean, it's completely fixed. There was a big problem and now there's no problem at all. And at first I was like, that's really cool. And then I was jealous because I would like to do this with my clients. I would like it if they came in and you know they said, I've got a movement problem here. Something's not moving right, it hurts or something. And I could look at it for a second and say, aha, I know exactly where the problem is. And now I just stretch this and strengthen that and the problem can be fixed and, and completely gone away. And a lot of people think that that's the way therapy works. A lot of people sell therapy is working that way. If you go to YouTube, you can see videos that say fix back pain forever with this one simple trick. And when I started as a therapist, I was kind of taught that things could be that way. But over time, I learned that bodies are so much more complex than that. They're not like machines. They're complex adaptive systems. So they don't often get fixed very quickly they heal over time but that process is kind of slow uh unpredictable and most of it's under the control of of that person themselves too you can as a therapist you can kind of help them in their growth process and their healing process and then coach them along and and show them the path but you're not going to fix them like a machine
0: yeah i almost think of you know as you say that you know if a ship has been off course for several days just a tiny bit and it's drifted. You're not. Um, you can just crank the wheel and try to try to do a uh, you know a 90 degree turn. However, um, generally, when we try to manage complex systems, with one that we we invariably overcorrect, and there are all these other issues that come from it. And, and generally, yeah, uh, if it took a long time to get there, it's probably going to take a minute to correct? or, or Yeah, adjust?
1: absolutely. That's something that my and my clients understand that for sure. I mean, if their problem came on all at once through an injury, that's gonna, actually going to heal up pretty quick in most cases. You're going to go through the process, you know, it might take weeks, it might take months or something like that, but you're going to get a nice quick healing process. If that problem was coming on slowly over the course of years, you know, like some pains do, maybe when related to, uh, you know, you, like the ones I had when I was a lawyer, Uh, you know, I kind of felt my back getting worse and worse and worse when I was a lawyer that did that. I made a lot of progress on that until it completely went away, but it wasn't ever a moment where it just got fixed. It was like a nice process of evolution over time.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think we, we all hope for that with, uh, when an issue comes up, can I find the the magic way to, to fix this? But getting tuned into the process, posture has always been a thing. And you mentioned, uh, you know, you mentioned Great Cook. You did a series of um, sort of global uh, screens. You'd look at a big movement and would say, hey, does that, is everything okay? Well, then everything's okay. Something's up. And if, okay, this say an overhead squat is a little janky. All right, what component part? Like, what are we looking at? Is it, is it ankle mobility? Is it, you know, is it a hip thing? Whatever. Um, so it was, it was useful. I, I love Gray Cook's uh, attempts to, Kind of
1: systematize and and uh, make objective and measurable uh, general coordination. You know, let's test you at this. Let's test you at that. Let's test you at the other thing, and then let's test whether uh, the tests we're doing correlate with uh, performance and, and injury. And it's, it turns out not that well. But uh, I, I really respect that he made a strong effort to do that. And kind of what I learned from it is that man, things are really, really, really complex. It's hard to measure movement quality objectively just like I said was, was saying at the start
0: yeah um, so if I am just starting out or restarting in an exercise and I'm kind of bought in on the idea that there's something to this there's something to how I do it um, as well as sort of the more uh, quantifiable mechanical parts how do how would you recommend I think about this how can I Um, take a movement-centric lens in the way that I'm exercising?
1: Yeah, so um, I think the most important thing about exercise is to to establish a consistent routine and show up and do it every day, not get too hung up on optimizing, oh, should it be weights? Should it be cardio? Um, Should it be that? If you can kind of show up and do moderate exercise, intense exercise, if it's just walking, any, anything more than you're doing and develop a habit and, and enjoy what you're doing, that's the most important thing. Uh, and I think that a lot of the, although I, I really like the idea of you know moving with coordination, moving with efficiency, in general, I think the, uh, when people got interested in the, these ideas, there started to be too much kind of demonizing bad form, bad posture, bad technique and doing things and trying to say, that's why you got hurt. And then it can leave people with the feeling of being um, afraid of movement, kinesiophobia, afraid of moving the wrong way, which can often be uh, unhealthy. Now, if you're moving under huge weights, if you're moving with high intensity and high forces involved, you need to be really, really, really careful about your technique. Maybe have a coach there, learn what you're doing. If you're moving in a way It's lower intensity. You're just walking around. Maybe you're just running around, not running that far, working with intensities you've worked with before. Don't worry too much about your technique. A lot of people will tell you you're doing this the wrong way. You're going to get hurt. Usually that's advice is a little bit overrated.
0: Sometimes I'll see these, um, you know, like gym fail videos on social media. Somebody's doing, you know, jumping around on, you know, holding a cable machine. And I have to say half the time, maybe I've just, you know, been at this too long. Half the time I look at it and go, that's kind of neat. I mean, as long as somebody's not actually getting injured or breaking the equipment, I'm like, that's, it's creative. It's, it's fine. They're, they're messing around.
1: You know, if it's a, if it's called a gym fail video, a lot of times people do get hurt at the end of it. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't like to be too judgmental about that. I mean, people like to be very judgmental on social media about the way people are exercising. You must exercise this way. You should never exercise that way. Um, Look at this idiot exercising the wrong way. I mean, to me, if you're in there exercising, that's a good thing.
0: I agree. Yeah, that's sometimes we'll see that somebody will will post a video. I've seen this with like celebrity, uh, you know, I remember Hugh Jackman. Wolverine I remember that. did a Feel deadlift like... video.
1: <laughs> right? That was horrible. So Hugh Jackman gets in there. He posts something that says uh,
0: he's he's doing a deadlift. like, I don't know, it's like three hundred pounds or, or more. Did I think it was four hundred? Like it was a big, you know, it was it was yeah. something.
1: Yeah, and he it says was if, you're, if, if the bar ain't bending, you're just pretending. And then all these lifting bros were like, dude. Do you even lift? That's not that much weight. It's like,
0: yes, it is through an elite powerlifting lens. It's not a lot of weight through a triple threat, uh, you know, busy professional who's just trying to, you know, um, maintain a physique and and any strength is bonus. That was cool. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's a funny, it's a funny thing where. Uh, often, you know, we see this a lot, it's a young industry. So people will often kind of go and, and snipe on and, and nitpick on, um, their colleagues to sort of differentiate or position themselves. And, um, you know, we should probably all relax a little bit about yeah. it. Wolverine's going to be just fine. As it <laughs> out. Uh, yeah. Of all the people to worry about technique with got the X factor, man. Um, so you're a big proponent of play.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That goes along with some of the things I've already mentioned. So I kind of i i use the word play to kind of in, in reference to exercise. Uh, I kind of think I like to form a dichotomy between a playful approach to exercise versus one that's more kind of like about work. And one of the differences uh, between play and work is the psychological aspect. So uh, play is an activity if you're playing an activity, that means you're intrinsically motivated to do the thing. That means you're doing it just because you like doing that thing. You're not doing it for some ex- extrinsic reason like to lose body fat or to gain strength or to prepare for, for some other event. You're doing the exercise because that's really exactly what you want to do. That's why dogs chase a ball. They don't do it to be fit. They, they really just want to chase the ball. That's why kids play tag. They're not doing it for any reason other than they enjoy that activity. And that's what's going to get you to show up and do your activity, which is the most important thing. Uh, another thing about playful activities is that they're loosely structured compared to work-like activities that are highly structured and prescribed. So if you go into the gym and you've got, this is exactly what I'm doing today, I'm doing you know this many sets and that many reps and all this kind of stuff where someone's telling you exactly what to do with your program, that's a different situation than doing exercise where it's loosely structured you're not exactly sure what you're going to do you get to make choices in it that's what the way most games are games are loosely structured there's there's rules you don't start playing with your hands in soccer but there's lots of choices when you're out there but if someone says dribble around these cones this many times in this many seconds and that's your soccer training that's work it's, it's much less play so just kind of that uh, I think in our society we've tipped the balance a little bit more towards work and away from from playful approaches to getting things done play it makes you creative it makes you show up it kind of sparks connections it has much more variability work is really really important too and you know if you want to get your exercise done it's going to be some work but I think we're working too much and not playing enough
0: yeah there's there's sort of there is a point I think in development where um, being more structured is required to move forward. I think people really overestimate how soon that comes um, and underestimate how far forward you can go, uh, how much progress you can make, just showing up and messing around um, and trying things and learning.
1: Absolutely. Um, yeah, getting yeah. from the intermediate to the expert is going require some work, but you can get a long, you can get a long ways from beginner to intermediate. Uh, and pretty good at something with with a more playful approach. And the mistake that people make a lot is that the early, you see with the early athlete specialization, the people want their kids doing nothing but soccer or basketball or whatever it is when they're eight, nine, ten years old, when the research shows that you really shouldn't start specializing in sports uh, until kind of your mid teen years is when when there's more of a payoff. And if you want to be the best twelve year old on the field, yeah, you should specialize in soccer when you're nine. But if you want to be the best player when you're 20, go out and play some baseball, play some basketball, play some soccer too, and then specialize in the soccer when you're more of a teenager.
0: Okay. Well, I'm I'm glad you brought that up. That was one of the things I really, you know, did want to talk to you about um, today. Why, um, you know, you mentioned like, yeah, if if you want to be the best on a shorter timeframe, you know, be hyper specialized. So let's talk about like why it works, why, why early specialization works or how it works and, and when it doesn't work and why.
1: Yeah. Well, you need to, I mean, if you want to, uh, especially in a real technical sport, you need to accumulate a certain amount of hours to learn all the techniques. I mean, no matter how talented you are, you're going to have to put in a certain amount of, uh, repetitions at, at the real specific techniques involved in those sports, which you're not going to get in another sport. So if I'm playing, tennis, I need to learn how to manipulate that racket. It's a very specific technique to tennis, but there's kind of some general athletic skills involved in tennis too, just kind of like uh, the general skills of agility and quickness and balance and, and, and kind of overall body coordination, which you can get and maybe even develop even better if you're playing not just tennis, but soccer, um, skateboarding, parkour, gymnastics, other kinds of things too. So, Federer didn't start specializing in tennis, I think, until he was around 13 or 14, and he played quite a lot of soccer, and he wasn't really clear on what sport he was going to do. So, if you're doing a sport which is super high technical demands, you might want to specialize a little bit earlier. There's something that you can specialize later when it's more kind of overall athletic ability. I'm thinking something like uh, football or basketball. A lot of those guys specialize late. I think I saw that. I think I saw a graphic just a, just a few days ago. they were looking at I think the the quarterbacks that had, that were leading their teams through the NFC playoffs, I'm talking about how many sports they played in high school. All of these guys were three sport athletes. Uh, Mahomes, Brady, um, all of the quarterbacks were three sport athletes, and um, there's that, that's not just uh, anecdotes. There's there's good data that. Uh, you know, sticking around in the other sports, learning general athletic skills, avoiding overuse injuries, avoiding psychological burnout, staying fresh for what you're doing is, is the long road path to success.
0: Yeah. Two really important things there. Um, overuse injuries. I remember of a nephew who was a big soccer player growing up, did a ton. Um, would do the outdoor season would do the indoor season. He. He specialized early, and I was—I came down for a visit, and uh, my brother said, "Well, he's—he's uh, he's headed to. They—they um, they would go to a place for, I guess, strength training. Um, I was like, oh, let me let me go watch, and, and I went, and they just had them do sprints, and I was like, this is all he does. This is the same. This is and and then he ha- and then he um, had to stop because his knee was hurting from rapid deceleration." And I just thought, this is this is broken. Um,
1: yeah, I feel bad for the kids these days. You know, I'm I'm like, you know, 54. So when I grew up, it was normal to, you know, you're, one season's done, you go on to the next season. So you play two or three, you know, sports in high school and you're not specializing. I see the kids specializing now. And yeah, it's the psychological and the physical burnout. I see kids getting overuse injuries at 10, 11, 12. I never, I don't remember that. And I don't remember anyone getting overuse injuries when when they were young. Uh, there was no, I mean, I played tennis growing up, so that is kind of a specialization sport. And there was a lot of pressure on people even back in the day to play tennis. And I remember kids kind of getting burned out or getting overly pressured by their parents, but I see that happening in all the sports now. Um, yeah, and it's a bummer. I feel, I feel bad for them. You know, they, they're, they're not all psyched to go to the next sport when the next season comes around. That was so fun, you know? to be able to play and do something and, you know, do something that you suck at, you know, go out there and play basketball, which I sucked at, but it was fun. And I'm glad I played, but now kids are like, you know, building their res. Well, I'm not sure that's where I'm going to be the best at. And I should specialize that's that that's out there, you know, and I, I, I feel bad that there's less exploration and adventure and, you know, permission to, to not ha- do something that won't look good on your college resume, you know?
0: Yeah. You know, well, my son's five and, you know, maybe this will be an, a totally different discussion in a decade, but right now I feel like my job is to give him exposure to stuff um, and make sure he has a good time and, and what, how he performs, what he does is so secondary, especially, you know, before puberty, like it, you know, it's just, it's a completely different world. It doesn't matter that much. The way his his body functions is going to be completely different, and I just want him to not have a terrible time doing it. So that someday, if um, if it comes up, hey, we, like we think you have a talent for this, um, it still feels fresh and it feels enjoyable, as opposed to you know, you know, al- almost feel like kind of uh, courting middle aged burnout. Yeah. During puberty.
1: Yeah. I mean, if there's anything, if there's anything that you'd if you wanted to predict that a kid is going to be successful at something someday based on their current you know behaviors and interests it would be their interest in doing it i mean that's 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 the thing right i mean it's like so if if young kids develop a very healthy interest in moving their bodies in whatever way that's what what could be better than that because that means they're going to show up to do it you know day after day week after week and then that pays off in the long term and everything kind of takes care, takes care of itself.
0: Yeah. And and coming back to this idea of, um, robotic movement, I think if you're there with energy to spare and interest and curiosity to spare, you're going to try different things. You're going to allow yourself to fail. You're going to experiment. And if you're just trying to perform all of a sudden the, the parameters for practice become much more rigid.
1: You need the you need the exploration. I mean, that's another thing. The difference between play and work. If you're working at a certain technique, uh, you're kind of rigidly applying this prescribed way of getting the thing done. But if you're playing, and you're not so worried about that. You watch kids play uh, tennis or do things. They try to they try a million weird ways to do stuff. You know, they hit the they hit the ball with the handle and not the strings. You know, they're just doing all kinds of weird exploratory stuff, and that stuff. Uh, you know, teaches you general skills and kind of creativity. Like basketball players dribble basketballs uh, two at the same time. They spin them on their fingers. These things have nothing to do with the game, but it's just like, it's just a general curiosity and love for exploration that all great athletes have.
0: Yeah, and there's like, um, you never know. And it's not to say that every one of these little side quests is going to be fruitful, but for the for the kid that had developed some sort of extra level of touch or sensitivity to the rotation of the ball or how to grip it um, or how to balance it in a, in a strange place. I mean, you never know how these are going to, you know, pop out spontaneously. Um, You know, maybe we'll talk about, maybe we'll talk about flow, uh, which is sort of uh, a funny subject because in some ways it's kind of overdone now. But like, what's what's it really supposed to be in this in this context?
1: Yeah. So, flows uh, is a um, uh, idea developed by what? Uh, Mikhail Cheek sent me high.
0: Me high. sent me high. It was always a, a, a tough one. <laughs> who just recently uh, passed away?
1: High. Um, yeah. So he, he just died. But any he, he he developed this really influential concept of flow, which is kind of like a peak psychological experience where you get so absorbed in the activity that you're doing. That you kind of uh, lose, you're very very present in the moment. Uh, You kind of lose your normal sense of time, maybe your sense of self. There's a feeling that the activity is being done uh, almost like happening to you, like you're fully in control of what's happening, but you're kind of like merging with the activity. So, you know, most people kind of maybe have felt that. It it often happens in something that uh, you're very skilled at, you have a high level of mastery at. Uh, that you love doing. And what he says is that this is like a peak life experience. When people experience flow in some, in some activity, they want to come back and keep doing it again. And uh, uh, it kind of relates to that idea of intrinsic motivation in play that I mentioned before. Like if you are intrinsically motivated to do something, you'll keep doing the thing. And if you find something that you flow at, whatever that is, you'll keep doing the thing. If you if you can flow in any kind of exercise that's kind of magic because it's going to make, you're going to do it.
0: Yeah. I think we have to be so careful, like, you know, intrinsic motivation is delicate in another person. It's easy for a well-intentioned parent, teacher, coach to just snuff out and, and try, you know, through an effort to motivate or an effort to improve. Um, But we have to be so tuned into the signals that we're getting from,
1: yeah weird weird thing about intrinsic motivation is that providing someone extrinsic motivation dulls your intrinsic motivation so let's say your your kid is there having a great time you know drawing something they're completely absorbed in what's going on they're doing it just because of that or they're they just whatever it is that you really like doing and you say that's fantastic here's a cookie Or you know, because you were did such a great job on that, we're gonna get let you watch a show or something. You're giving them an extrinsic reward that actually kind of undermines their intrinsic activity. So uh, motivation, so it is a delicate thing.
0: Yeah, the second you turn it transactional, uh, yeah. it's really it's really tricky. So uh, how old is your daughter now?
1: Uh, let's see. I've got a uh, I've got a <laughs> tough question. I've got a fourteen year old <laughs> and eleven year old now.
0: Okay, all right. 15, so you're in the thick of it. And Fifteen and eleven. Um, so talk to me about, you know, how you think of their, their physical experience and what you do and what you don't, what you absolutely do not do. I'm I'm most curious about that.
1: Yeah. I, um, let's see. I mean, well, they're, they're, they're different, uh, kids, you know, I've got one that child that is very intrinsically motivated to move and engage in activity. And, you know, I can, I just kind of get out of the way uh she's she's physically healthy engages in a wide range of sports uh the other one healthy as well but never had the love of sports um and so there's that you know kind of like i sometimes push her to do things and it's a very kind of uh hard strategic management of like extrinsic reward for for getting some exercise done versus, you know, you know, trying to help her find something that she'll like to do on her own. So more difficult.
0: Yeah. And I imagine, I don't see you as a, as a drill sergeant, but I imagine when you, when you talk about extrinsic motivation, just trying to get her exposed to something and try it and, and experience it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Just kind of like, uh, you know, no, I, well, I, you know, when I was young, I, I, my mom has told me this, although I've forgotten, I ended up spending my youth, um, Totally loving sports and and you know, I played soccer for like 30, 40 years and in, in racket sports too. But when my mom introduced me to those things, I wasn't gonna do it and I was not gonna do it. Uh, you know, when I was like six and seven. And um, she kind of like forced me to do it. And then, you know, after the first or second time, I was like, this is great. I want to keep doing it. But you know, it's kind of, you know, what if you played back the clock and she didn't <laughs> she didn't force me to do it, you know?
0: It's such a, a- tricky balance, right? Because, um, we're, we're not trying to puppeteer our kids and we, we want what they're going to really enjoy. But sometimes, I mean, they don't always know, they, they don't know enough. They don't have enough expertise or experience to really, um, always evaluate what they're going to enjoy. So how do we, you know, how do we manage that balance um, between being like totally laissez faire and, and just being, you know, like, a, a a Navy seal about the way we, we approach parenting.
1: That's a great question. And when you figure out the answer, let me know because it's, <laughs> you know, you know, it's an art form. It's, the, I think, you know, it kind of goes to what I was saying before, the difference between humans and machines. If you are an expert in the operation of a machine, you can completely understand everything that's going on it. And c- and control it as well, but you can kind of like accumulate. You can become an expert in, let's say, child development, uh, world class expert. But you're still going to be bumping up against that same question that you same that you ask, and not knowing which strategy to apply.
0: You know, I re- <laughs> I forget where I saw this, but it was like, you know, you're you you wonder why you have weird thoughts. Your your mind is a hunk of meat with electricity coursing through it. It's not going to be totally predictable, guys.
1: No, <laughs> no, no, no. no. And it's kind of like one. That's one of the themes in in my second book is that it's the way that you can be uh, deceived when you become an expert on something and you acquire a lot of knowledge. You kind of expect that you know you've seen how effective expertise is in like sending rocket ships to the moon and programming computers, and you think that if you are just as well trained in your subject matter as a computer programmer is or a bike mechanic you can control the thing that you want to control in the same way, but you can't. And oftentimes trying to do it makes things worse.
0: (sighs) Yeah. And we, um, we frequently get into, so one of the, like the big themes of the last um, couple of years has been this sort of epistemic overreach where someone who is an expert in one area who really has a depth of knowledge assumes that they're going to go ahead and flip that over. And all of a sudden, so that's where we get somebody who knows maybe a lot about tech, for example, now being an expert on epidemiology or social justice or um, constitutional law, just picking totally random exa- yeah, examples, nothing to do with anything.
1: Thinking those, But yeah, yeah, it's, uh, I think that, you know, what, uh, like a profound, uh, thing that I learned when I you know was studying all this stuff was that there was a point in time when I thought that I was had it all figured out and was so smart uh, and then you learn more and then you and then you kind of really realize that how little you know and it's kind of like the more you know the less you know that you don't know type of a thing is going on and it's it's a blow to your ego it's uh, it really changes the way you look at things and then you see other people making the same mistake.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We sort of recognize it in hindsight. And I think, I don't know. Yeah. Some level of, of intellectual humility is required. How do you know, how do you know when you're on the wrong track for something? Like what are your red flags personally?
1: Well, um, yeah, well, I guess in terms of, um, you know, the, the epistemic question, how do I know that I'm on the wrong track? I guess some kind of like some, um, uh, can I, am I able to explain the thing really clearly? Like if, 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 um, if I can't explain it, I feel like maybe I don't understand it. And sometimes I do some of my writing to understand it better. So that's kind of like, you know, if you, if you can explain something, you'll understand it better. Um, you know, do I have, am I emotionally connected to, to the outcome too much? Mm. Um, who are my sources of authority here? Are, are they uh the kind of people i mean i try to identify people who you know just have the kind of attitude where they're not afraid to switch their mind they often confess that they're they have a humble approach so i mean like with the pandemic of course i knew nothing about epidemiology and immunology when this started just like 99 of the world and then you have to decide which of these experts are the ones uh that you follow which ones do you trust and you if you kind of start thinking about who's trustworthy and who's not, you can kind of spot the personality type, even if you don't know the, the subject matter, you know, again, the kind of person that admits that they're wrong, versus the kind of person that's really defending themselves when it looks like they made a mistake, I'm not going to trust that person as much anymore.
0: Yeah, when um, it's almost like when an opinion or, or a viewpoint becomes integrated into somebody's identity, that gets really tough to walk back.
1: Yeah, they're a warrior for that idea instead of like an objective, you know, scout.
0: Uh, it's a funny time. It's a funny time. Um, you describe movement as a nutrient. Tell me about that.
1: Well, I really like that idea. It's not my idea. I got it from, I think, two sources um, uh, Nick Tumanello is a trainer, and um, uh, uh, oh my God, uh, Katie. Um, Uh, Bowman. Mm. Uh, So basically, the the analogy is that uh, you you can uh, think of, uh, you can understand the kinds of exercises that program that would be good for you, by kind of thinking in terms uh, that we like like using an analogy to like a diet. So um, like, uh, with food with nutrients, if you're getting none at all of that nutrient, you really need to get that nutrient or else you're gonna have a deficiency disease, You know, vitamin C, vitamin A, whatever it is. And then so the if you're getting none of it, then getting just a little bit of that thing is incredibly beneficial, like fantastically beneficial. And then there's a point where, it's a, where, where if you've got enough of it, getting more of it, like barely provides any benefit at all. Like if you've got enough vitamin C, getting a little bit more vitamin C is not really that helpful. And then there's a point where you can actually get too much of it, I don't know if that happens with vitamin C but you can start having too much let's say iron and then it can start acting like a poison. Um, and you know the essence of a good diet is a balanced diet getting lots of different things you know a certain amount of this a certain amount of that a certain amount of the other thing you can think of that in terms of exercise. So you know if you're getting none getting a little is just hugely beneficial and then if you're getting already getting a lot adding more is not providing that much benefit. At some point it starts to hurt you.
0: I think that's a really good analogy, especially since, yeah, when there's a, a conspicuous deficiency, when something is really lacking, a little bit is transformative.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's obvious for the person that's completely sitting on the couch, like walking, you know, like a thousand or so steps, that's, that's hugely beneficial. Or, or to take an extreme example, someone that's like relegated to, to being in bed and is not moving at all, uh, their muscles will start, they'll get deficiency diseases, their muscles will atrophy, their, their joints will, will not move. So just like getting up and walking across the floor is the difference like between being crippled <laughs> and being basically functional. And then the thousand or a couple of so steps, that's great too. Another way to look at this is let's say that you're always eating the same meal every day. It's a healthy meal to eat, you know, steak, potatoes and broccoli, but if you're that's your meal every single day, that's not as good as, you know, varying it around. And it's similar with exercise too. So you can be a super 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 fit person that only runs or only lifts heavy weights. You're not going to help yourself that much more by running a little bit more or lifting more weights as you would by adding one or the other in at a low level, so for some variety.
0: Do you want to talk about um, GPP, about general physical preparedness and, and how that fits into this conversation?
1: Yeah, maybe GPP is kind of a way to, to think about you know what, it's just like what your physical function would be like if you ate a healthy movement diet. So it's kind of like you're you're prepared for lots of different things. You're prepared to run a long distance, but you're also prepared to lift a heavy weight at the same time. And you're also prepared to um, execute fundamental movement patterns like squats, lunges, climbing, crawling, rolling, falling, throwing, kicking, stuff like that. So general physical preparedness is like being able to do a wide variety of like basic building block things that you can put together in various combinations to assemble a wide variety of functional activities or sports.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I like to think of being generally fit as just, you know, being maybe six weeks away from competence in just about anything. You're you're introduced to this new sport, you don't know what it is, you won't you know necessarily be a great player after six weeks, but you'll you'll do fine, and you'll actually outperform a lot of folks who um, who are missing some of those essential. Uh, I guess we'll call the movement nutrients, right? Who maybe don't move sideways as well yeah. as they could, or decelerate I like, as well. I
1: like that idea. I, I like to kind of think about all the different things that, um, oh, maybe like a hunter gatherer would be able to do, or kind of like the kinds of things that people around me are able to do, and just kind of like have the sense that that I'm kind of close to being able to do a lot of those things at an intermediate level.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then the converse of that sometimes is, um, people who, who are hyper specialized, like if you're going to be an elite level powerlifter, you're not going to be that great, um, at a lot of these other things because you need a certain amount of stiffness, um, to be able to squat a, a ton of weight. Um, you're not going to be practicing moving laterally or rotationally beyond very subtle corrections the barbell um, and i i feel like sometimes you know we really love a specialist and kind of lo- look at things culturally but if you are not on your way to you know a multi-million dollar contract um if you are not on your way to a world record maybe specialization is less important then yeah, i mean to get
1: to get better and better and better at something you you start reducing your overall health cuz health is kind of like a state of balance and specializing is a state of like putting all of your eggs in one basket so you're you're less robust so i mean to to get to the olympic level at anything you almost have to break yourself you almost have to break yourself mentally uh physically in a lot of ways you you can't become a great runner without seriously risking, you know, tearing hamstrings, getting all sorts of overuse injuries. In fact, those things definitely will happen. Whereas if you're kind of a generalist, you get it's it's kind of a healthier, more balanced state uh, for the body. I mean, you can get really 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 good at a sport without compromising your health. But when you really want to squeeze every last inch of your performance into a particular direction, there's got to be compromises.
0: Yeah, and I guess, you know, what I'm hearing as you is you describe that as we can put the brakes on something as soon as it um, doesn't feel right, or we're noticing the emergence of of injury or pain. And that can be our, um, our limiter. Or we can prioritize a specific performance. And that could be pounds on the bar, that could be mileage, that could be speed, whatever, which is just a different priority.
1: Yeah, it's just kind of trade-offs. I mean, I've got my little competitive goals that I like to do sometimes. And and when I'm uh, working towards them, you know, I don't sleep as well. I don't feel as well. Mm-hmm. You know, my body's trying to adapt to do this thing that it doesn't really want to do. I mean, I want to do it, but my like for example, my body does not want to carry a lot of muscle. It's kind of like decided genetically, whatever that that uh, you know, you're going to starve to death if you do that. So let's let's cannibalize it as soon as it, as soon as it gets on there. But and to convince my body to have a lot of muscle, I would really have to work hard and 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 my body fights back for sure
0: yeah arguably there's no real strong evolutionary drive to accumulate muscle tissue after adolescence um we're sort of ice skating uphill on that stuff as another as as a guy (laughs) in his 40s trying to build or maintain whatever he can uh it ain't the same it's a lot more work these days um wait till your 50s (laughs) it's coming it's coming up uh yeah we sort (laughs) of did you feel like i feel like when i was young when i was like 20 years old i was like aging is the result of a bad attitude i just didn't believe (laughs) that you could do it
1: well i remember uh when i was uh in my 20s and i had all that pain um and i was thinking of aging and i was thinking oh it's just going to get worse it's just going to get worse." This is because I got old. I didn't have this when I was young. And as I get older, it's gonna get worse. And one of my pleasant discoveries was that was not true at all. I got completely rid of it. And that was kind of one of the things that I wanted to kind of spread the word about is it's not just about getting older.
0: Yeah. So, okay, some things like athletic performance and, and muscle get way harder. And it's not to say that we don't have some Constraints with aging when it comes to uh, to pain, but this has been my experience. I, this has been the experience of a lot of folks we've worked with, and and it's it's been yours. And that is, pain can be reduced as we as we get older. Uh, function can improve um, if if we're training in the right way. So, what is as kind of a a, a final thought, Todd? Um, how would you? Organize um, the, you know, an approach to exercise. How would you organize an approach to movement and and living in a way that we can kind of prioritize how we're feeling?
1: Yeah, I mean, you can uh, you can obviously consult with uh, experts. The you know get get a coach, get a trainer, something like that. You know, that's one thing to do. You can kind of uh, learn about it on your own and kind of geek out on it, like I do. Like for example, you could kind of. To get back to that diet idea you know i kind of think and a lot of people think in terms of uh, building muscle is one thing you can do building aerobic capacity is another thing you can do Um, uh, doing the really long slow distance kind of walking is another thing you can do but working on your functional movement patterns working on your mobility is another thing you can do so those are kind of like a bunch of boxes you could think that i'd like to check for like an ultimate workout program and, uh, there's different ways to do that. You know, you can do that with, uh, kind of a lifting weights, kind of like, like your typical gym thing, where you go in and you lift weights and you do some stretching and you do some cardio that kind of checks a lot of those boxes. Uh, but you know how you kind of put all those things together, uh, a trainer can help with that. You can do it on your own. Uh, and yeah, most important thing is show up for it every day because, and don't let the perf let, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good.
0: hmm Yeah. I think that's really important. And, and I would, I would prioritize consistency like well, well above any kind of intensity. Uh, Because at the end of the day, that's going to be the platform for everything else. Um, Anything we can shout out for you? Anything you want to tell the world about?
1: Uh, I got a website at toddhargrove.substack.com. That's a newsletter where I do a bunch of uh, kind of blogging. And uh, also there's a podcast that runs out of there called The Better Movement Podcast. Uh, I've got a couple books, Playing with Movement and Guide to Better Movement. Uh, You can find occasional movement classes that I teach through my Substack place where I teach kind of Feldenkrais mindful movement courses over the courses uh, of weeks.
0: Okay, very good. Uh, And for what it is worth, I've been in this a long time. I like Todd's stuff a lot. Um, Thank you, sir. I really appreciate Todd's thought process on this stuff, and in particular that he preaches a broad kind of experience of movement and physicality. That kind of integrated process, I believe, really gives people an opportunity to find a version of movement and exercise that means something to them and that they enjoy. I think we need both. I'm also going to call back to the beginning of the episode where I mentioned that your hardware is seldom the limiting factor. So I want to thank you for hanging out with us today. Thank you to the Unlearning Network. Special thanks to my guest, Todd Hargrove. If you're not already following the Dad Strength podcast, uh, please do subscribe, rate, reach out. You know, I'd love to hear from you as well. Uh, all that stuff means a lot. Reminder here that you can learn more about my workshop at dadstrength.com/ADHD. Be well, move well. I'll see you soon.